Let me say again how great it is to be here with you. <clears throat> We're excited. I, I know the reputation and the ministry of this church that has preceded us, and we are thankful to be here. We're thankful to come back to Mississippi. I was born and raised in Huntsville, Alabama, but my family is all Mississippi roots. Laurel, Brookhaven, Port, Port Gibson, those areas. My wife, like, like Kayla mentioned, is from South Jackson. Stephanie's from South Jackson. We met and married at Mississippi College, where we now have um, two, two of our boys are there. One's a junior, one is a freshman. Actually, actually our, um, our son, uh, Jacob, is, I believe, Caleb's, R, Caleb's son's RA. So, you know, it, it may not be a small world, but it's a small state. When, when you hang out in Mississippi. So, um, and then we've got two other kids at Covenant College. Um, they all send their greetings and are excited about this as well. I want to invite you to, to turn in Scripture now to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to read verses 35 to 38. This evening, I, I want to begin a conversation with you that I hope you might carry with you through the rest of this conference as you consider that this light of the world that we're called to bring why does God have you here why does God call you to be light or, or let, let me put it this way if we as a church are going to claim to follow Jesus Christ if we're going to claim to be about what he is about then shouldn't we be doing what he does <clears throat> more specifically shouldn't we be loving who he loves well, who does Jesus love? He loves his body. He loves the bride. He loves his family. Even when loving her can be so hard. But this evening, I want to take that idea of Jesus loving the bride, and I want to turn it outward to whom else Jesus loves, to a, really to a topic that can make us, let's be honest, even at missions conferences and things, it can make us shift uncomfortably. Jesus loves the lost. And if we're going to be followers of Jesus, it's not enough to just simply care for the lost. It's not enough to simply write checks for missions for the lost. If we're going to claim to be followers of Jesus, we have to love the lost as well. My friends, in view of the mercy of God, there, there is a response to those who follow Jesus that we have to say, Lord, give us your eyes. Give us your heart. Yes, make us light because we burn for the lost the way you do. So I want to invite you to look with me at this text, this text of, of Jesus Christ loving the lost, looking out at this world. Listen to what scripture says about what he sees when he looks at them. This is the word of God, Matthew 9, verses 35 to 38. It says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages and teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. <clears throat> when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is God's word. Would you pray with me as we start? Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word that is at work. We thank you for your word that is perfect and that is inspired by your very mouth. Lord, would you apply it to our hearts tonight? 
Lord, as Caleb prayed just a little while ago, don't let us be just hearers only, but, but make us doers of the word, those who know you and follow you. Lord, would you rule over this time and would you make this church into the people and the bride you want her to be? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> One of the fiercest battles of the war in Afghanistan was the Battle of Ganjgal Valley. I don't know if there's military people here, people who've served or whatever, but basically in this valley, there was a, there was a town at the end of the valley that was known as a haven for mili militants and bomb makers and terrorists and things like that. So a, a company of Marines <clears throat> were tasked to go in and secure this, this city. It was a city at the end of a, of a long winding mountain highway that came in to a canyon that narrowed more and more and more. And actually at the end of the road, at the dead end of the road, was the city with mountains ringing it on three sides and the Marines had to go in and secure it. Again, any military people here, do you, do you hear what I just described? A city ringed on three sides with mountains around it. It was a textbook ambush. And as soon as they went in, the, the mountains exploded with rocket fire and grenade fire and machine gun fire. Immediately, three Marines and a Navy corpsman were immediately hit. The Marines pulled back, took cover, but they'd left men behind. There were men who were exposed. So one Marine, Dakota Meyer, ran back in and man by man began to grab people and pull them to safety pulled them back to, to where the men had retreated. But then he did something amazing again and again and again. He went back. He went back exposing himself to enemy fire. He said later he knew he was going to die. He expected to die, but he couldn't not go because he knew that the people he loved were under attack. Again and again, he went back to save others. I want to speak to you. We, we marvel at, at that kind of courage. We marvel at somebody who would do things like that. We give medals. Dakota Meyer actually won the Medal of Honor for that. But I want to speak to you tonight of an even greater hero. One who knew that the people he loved were under attack. One who exposed himself willingly to the attack of the enemy. Not just knowing that he might die, but knowing full well that he would die. And yet he died to defeat the enemy and rescue those he loved. Those whom he knew were pinned down and harassed and helpless and dying under the attack of a deadly enemy. And in looking that, at that here, I want, I, I want us to see tonight how he points the way. How we who are in, a, in his footsteps are to be running toward people, not from them. Warning people of the danger and the reality of sin that... That even the darkness of hell itself awaits them in this life and in the life to come. We also are to be incredibly loving and compassionate and welcoming, even rescuing of those around us whose lives are so broken and so far from God, but who will never come to us on their own because they fear that we will reject them simply as sinners. So ultimately, I want to speak to you today of, of how we are to go to them, how we are to rescue them with life-saving intent, how we, we as a church, can I include myself with you, are to carry the words of Jesus in the ways of Jesus 
to those who were harassed and helpless and lost. <clears throat> and to do that, we first need to see the lost. Let, let me, guys, let me say up front, my goal tonight is not to offend, but it is to step on some toes. And in doing that, I got to tell you that, it, that it's my big feet that I'm stepping on first, okay? We who often speak so well of wanting the lost to be saved, but then are too busy to interact with them ourselves. Not so with Jesus. This text begins, Jesus went throughout the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease. He, he goes to their towns, and he's, and he's interacting with them, and, he, and he's touching them. And, he, and, and what happens is, is what you'd expect. Word gets out. There's a healer. There's somebody who can heal the blind, who can make the lame to, to walk, who can heal every disease. And, and so everybody who's sick comes, and, and what does Jesus do? He heals them. I, I remember back in seminary, in my seminary days, taking a course on the, on the life and ministry and the miracles of Jesus Christ. And I remember uh, under a great Dutch theologian studying all the, all the reasons why Jesus performed miracles. They're signs of the kingdom and eschatological realities and they're a foretaste of what's to come. And all those reasons are true. But you know why Jesus healed people of disease? Because he cared for them. He had compassion on them. But Jesus knew, he knew that he could heal them of every disease and eventually they would still die and go to hell. But if they hear the good news, then though they will have troubles in this, in this life, if they believe the gospel, they will live forever with God. So as Jesus looks at the crowds, the crowds that are coming to him, he is moved by what he sees. I wonder, my friends, in comparison, how often do we move past the crowds and never really see them at all? At our soccer games, at our, at our, at our school meetings, at our work, <clears throat> every day we pass people and we don't stop to really see them or consider their destiny. Think with me a minute about the parable of the, of the Good Samaritan. We won't take the time to turn there. You know it, right? We teach our children this. We, we do VBS on this. There's veggie tales on this. The, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And if you remember when we tell that story, we tell the story of the priest and the Levite. And usually when we tell it, they're the bad men. They saw the, the man beat up in the ditch and about to die. And they passed far by on the other side. What you need to know about the parable of the Good Samaritan is that the priest and the Levite were not dreadful men. They were simply doing what was exactly reasonable. This man was beaten and near death. There was a law against a, preach, a priest touching the dead. And if, if, if he did touch a dead person, there were severe consequences. He would be unclean and that would be embarrassing. He would have to miss a, a week of work. It would be costly. And then he would have to wait in line outside the temple with all the other sick and diseased people. People who would turn and go, aren't you a priest? Why are you in this line? And he would have to show himself to the other priest to try to be cleansed. And there was every good reason for him to pass by on the other side. To pretend that he didn't see. To pretend that he didn't hear the cries for help. His system and that of the Levite, this system made it easy for them to pass by. 
and my friends. What I want to share with you tonight is that ours does the same thing. There's always a reason not to stop, not to pull over, not to get involved. It's always the wrong time. We're always so busy. I told you, Caleb and I both told you that we've got four kids in college. Stephanie and I have four kids in college. And by the way, that's not why we're here raising support. I need to tell you that, okay? It could be, but it's not. But, but for the past several years, my kids have begun the new year by going to the Passion Student Conference in Atlanta. I see a, a, a group of students in the back. Go to the Passion Student Conference in Atlanta, okay? Great way to start the year. 65,000 kids who start the year in the Mercedes-Benz Dome singing and praising God and, and doing worship. And the first couple of years that they went, I wanted to check it out myself, so I went with them. And you spend the whole evening there with 65,000 praising Jesus. And you know what happens when it's over? You leave. And you walk out into downtown Atlanta. You know who hangs out in downtown Atlanta late at night? The homeless and the poor and the people who come up to you asking or harassing or wanting something. And look, with you, I, I've taught my kids, you know, we don't just go hand out money because so often that money is just going to be drunk or shot up or something like that. But, but, but yet those first couple years we were there, we were in this conference and we're singing and we're praising Jesus. And when you're done, it starts early the next day. So you got to get to the hotel and there's not time to stop and you push on by. And it struck me. 65,000. And are we even willing to stop and engage and encounter with the people that were passing by on the street? And, and I know guys, I know you say, well, you know, how often are we just like that priest in the story of the Good Samaritan? We go out of our way not to see, not to hear. We have our t-shirts and our Bibles and our Christian music. We go to our Christian schools and we proclaim that we know Jesus and that we love him. But we pass by those who are in economic or social or most importantly, spiritual need of eternity. And we refuse to see. And we refuse to hear. And, and you might, but Mark, if, if, if I took the time to stop and engage with every lost and broken person around me, it's, it's all I would do. Look, I, I get it. I know it's hard. I've got lots to do every day as well. Besides work, there's, there's bills to pay and, and repairs to be made and errands. And did I mention we've got four teenagers? Life is, is busy. There's just so much on my plate. I want the lost to be saved. I just don't have the time. I get it. These things are important. These things that we fill our days with are necessary to sustain life. But what is the reason why God has his church in this world? What is our purpose for being here? When you start talking purpose with good reformed Presbyterians, you should think, well, well we're here to, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We're here to know him and to make him known. And I wonder, will we, will we be willing to take time away from our pursuit of things that are not eternal? The acquisition of more things, the acquisition of more comfort. Will we risk it? Will we risk it all? to care about the eternal destiny of the people around us. Do we even see them? 
They might be strangers to us, but they are not to the face of God. They were made in his image and they are precious to him. Are we willing to see? And if, we're, if we begin to see them, then are we willing to let our hearts break for them as Jesus' heart breaks for them? Again, let me, let me allude to the story of the Good Samaritan again. Why did the Samaritan stop when the others passed by? He saw a man lying in the ditch, beaten, bloodied, near death. And again, you don't have to turn there, but, but Luke 10, tells us he saw him and he had compassion on him. Do you hear it? It's what Jesus, who by the way, is the real good Samaritan. It's what Jesus models for us in this passage in verse 36. He saw the crowds. And he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He, he, he saw the crowds and it, they're so easy to see and become numb. But Jesus really saw them. He saw them for what they were. He saw them for who they were. And seeing them, he had compassion on them. This word here in Matthew 9, literally, if we were to translate it the most literal that we could from the original, it would be Jesus was brokenhearted for them. He really cared. And that makes all the difference. How long has it been since my heart broke for the lost? Or yours? What about me? What about you? So, so many times we can just see people that we pass as, as just passing objects or unreal avatars. And we don't really take the time to care, time to consider what they're going through, time to really listen, time to really hear. Or we listen to them while formulating our responses rather than listening to really have compassion. My friends, a, a biblical Christian understands that that everybody that we pass every day, everyone is an eternal being and they are fallen. And we all by nature are sinful and evil and in rebellion to God and separated from God because we're sinners. And Jesus saw the crowds. He saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. My friends, please hear me say this. The non-Christians that we pass by every day are not the enemy. Hear that again. The non-Christians that we pass by, rub shoulders with, interact with every day are not the enemy. They are in darkness. And we have the news of the light of the world. Even when they hate us, even when they reject us, even when they persecute us, when they don't vote like us or talk like us or sound like us, they are not the enemy. Just look at the terms that the Bible uses for them. Lost, blind, dead in their sins, lost in darkness, harassed and helpless. Do we care? Are we willing to have compassion on them like the one that we say we love has compassion on them? One of my favorite verses in scripture, a verse that I'm already sort of praying for and claiming in our ministry to the lost in Ocean Springs is 1 Thessalonians 2.8 that says this. It says, we loved you enough 
we loved you enough to share with you not only the gospel, it is always about sharing the gospel. The gospel is the only thing that can bring death into life. But we loved you enough to share not only the gospel, but our lives as well, because you had become dear to us. And again, you might say, but Mark, don't you see what's going on on the news? Don't, don't you know how crazy it is out there? Or, <clears throat> or even locally, you wouldn't believe what my neighbor says or does or what my neighbor's into. Yes, I would. I've had that neighbor too, okay? And Jesus said it is for the lost sheep of this world that he came to die. What about us? Are we willing to die to our comforts and ourselves and our agendas and our schedules? I, and again, guys, I get it. I, I go on vacation to the mountains or, and, I, and, I, and I get away somewhere and, and I don't want to come back because it's, it's hard and it hurts. And, but we are called to people. Are we willing to really see and to really hear and to really care? Will we have compassion? Can I be honest with you in all this? I don't necessarily consider myself a great evangelist. That's not a great thing to admit where there's a missions team that I'm hoping will support us, okay? But I'm not one of these guys that just, you know, goes around everywhere and, you know, people just fall down and that kind of thing. But what the Lord has given me by his grace is an ability to be approachable to the lost. That's what we began to see these last three or four years in my church in Birmingham, for the, for the loss to come to me and for the loss to trust me and for the loss to share and to, and to feel like I care. And it's been beautiful to see how God has built bridges. Can I be honest further? There are sometimes at the end of a long day that I don't want to be a pastor anymore. There's sometimes at the end of a long day that I don't care anymore. Can, can I... Can I share further with you? There are sometimes when people say, aren't, hey, aren't you a pastor? that I want to answer, no, not right now. I'm off the clock. Sorry. Can I be further honest with you where I've blown this? This past summer, there was one of those days where just, and look, Caleb knows this. They're, they're, they're just those days where you're not feeling very holy about your calling. Okay. And it's one of the, and I just had to get out. And Stephanie was, was actually in Jackson visiting her parents. My kids were somewhere else. I was alone. So I thought, I'm going to hop in the car. The great thing about Birmingham, Birmingham's not really in anything, but it's close to a lot. It's a few hours to the mountains. It's a few hours to the beach. I thought, I'm going to go to the beach. Middle of the day, I'm just going to drive to the beach. Get away for a little bit. I'm man, I'm, I may have exceed, exceeded a speed limit or two, okay? And, and, but I'm driving south, and I, but I'm about an hour and a half south of, of Birmingham, and I start realizing I need gas, and I need gas bad. Not like 20 miles down the road. I need gas now. I'm passing the exits in South Montgomery. I-65, driving south to the beach, I'm in South Montgomery. Anybody ever driven I-65 south to South Montgomery? There are certain areas there where you don't want to stop and get gas, be a little bit like being around Highway 80 or Ellis Avenue or something in Jackson. Certain areas where you don't want to stop. I didn't have a choice. I was out of gas. I had to stop. So I pulled over. <clears throat> I was barely even out of the car. I wasn't even pumping gas yet. Where here he comes. You know who he is. The guy who lives 24-7 outside the gas station. 
The guy who's there looking for a handout, probably looking for a fix or a beer or something like that. Here he comes. He's, he's shuffling and he's smelly and he's, disca- and he's walking toward me. And I was just over it. And, and I looked at him. And while he was still a good ways off, I looked at him and I said, stop. I don't want to hear it. And he sort of hung his head. And he went walking off toward the gas station. Now I'm pumping the gas. And do you know what the Holy Spirit's doing to me the whole time? That was the longest tank of gas ever in the world. (laughs) Holy Spirit's telling me, you got to go talk to that guy. I don't want, you know. So I finished pumping. I walked over to him. I said, sir, I said, I'm sorry. You didn't deserve that. Can I, again, I'm not going to hand him cash, but I said, can I buy you a meal? So we went inside, got him a sandwich, something, you know, apple juice or something like that. We sit on the curb together for a little while. We talk for a little bit. He tells me his story. Then as he's finishing up his sandwich, he looked, he said, so what do you do? (laughs) Is it ever okay for a pastor to lie? I looked at him and I said, I'm a pastor. And with more grace than I deserved. He said, I thought you might be. I could see a little bit of Jesus in you. Now, again, I've blown it so many times. I, I, don't, I don't say that to say, you know, pat myself. Again, I blew it there with that guy. But I've also been there at times, sometimes that we're, we're just by taking the time to show up or to be present with people or to hang out where they are or learning to ask some questions and listen to some stories. I've been there at times where I've had the sweetest, most awesome, most holy privilege, the privilege to be there with them in that moment of their greatest crisis when eternity hangs in the balance and they're crying out for God. I've been there. I've stood in the door with a deputy who who we just got off a shift together. And and he stood there looking at his empty house where while he was all night at his shift, his wife had cleared out his house and every every possession in it and taken the kids somewhere that he didn't know where they were and literally left a note for him on the floor because there wasn't any furniture left. And I've stood there with that deputy at that moment. I've been there in the Waffle House with a waitress who was serving, serving us breakfast, but who ended up sharing her life story and her pain and the story of her family and told us how now she'd adopted her 12-year-old daughter because her son was, was too hooked on drugs to take care of her 12-year-old granddaughter, excuse me. But now she didn't know what to do because the 12-year-old granddaughter was, had begun cutting herself because she hated herself so much. And, and, and I heard the waitress who said, could Jesus love her as much as he says he does. My friends, when people start to feel like we care, when they start to feel like we, that, that we will really take time, they will unburden themselves and, and trust us like you wouldn't believe. The image of God around us is crying out through the lives of people that we pass every day and we've missed it. Are we willing to stop and to really see and to really have compassion. I should warn you, it's easy at a missions conference like this, I should warn you, if you really do this, it will get messy. The people out there in the wild, they won't come to us as neatly wrapped, finished packages ready to to say a prayer and and do a sinner's prayer and be saved. They will be broken, they will be needy, they will be, they will make self-defeating choices. 
They will say things to make you uncomfortable, often on purpose. Listen to that again. It will get messy and we have to be willing to engage anyway. They will not talk like us or sound like us or act like us. Often they will not smell like us. They might get mud and blood on our carpet and on our lives. And it may be that they're doing that for the specific intentional reason of seeing how we will react. Will we be like all the other religious people they've known in their lives? People who've brought only judgment? Or will we look with the eyes of Jesus and see with the heart of Jesus? In a rushed and hectic world, will we realize that being a Christian is about loving God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and then loving others more than we love our own comforts and our own agendas? Will we look and believe where all of this ends in the book of Revelation that we're the promise that one day, one day there will be, it's not in doubt, there will be around the throne people from every race and tribe and nation and people group. People from downtown Jackson, people from Ocean Springs. God will fulfill his great promise and his great commission. It is simply our calling and our privilege to be part of him doing so. It is the way of our Savior. And it is the way of people who themselves are grateful for the grace that they have received. See, when we read, when Jesus saw the crowds and they were harassed and helpless, do we remember that was me? And it would still be me apart from the rescuing compassion of Jesus. Do we recognize from what we've been saved and are we grateful and are we moved? So that in view of God's mercy, we will offer our own lives as living sacrifices. One day, a young girl in Japan was walking down the street with her classmates. This girl was named Machiko. She was walking down the street with her classmates. They had to get from the school to a museum. And so they were walking down the street like school children do, holding hands like little, little ducks in a row, right? Machiko was in the very last of the line. And, and as the line reached a street corner and turned around the street corner. All of her classmates went around the corner on this morning of August 6th, 1945 in Hiroshima, Japan. And in a flash, they were gone. Machiko was still around the corner. And so she was saved from the worst of the blast, but not from the heat and not from the fire. And she was burned severely from head to toe. And a few days later, when the occupation forces came in and when the newsreels came in and images came back to America of Machiko burned that severely, the nation cried out, a nation that knew what had caused it. They knew the deceit at Pearl Harbor. They knew the murder of thousands in uniform and, and out. They knew the slaughter at Bataan. They, they knew the reasons to be angry. But when, when the newsreels showed Machiko, then hearts cried out for peace. And she was brought to this country and, and a nation was crying out for compassion and mercy because they'd seen what the fire could do. My friends, that was a fire that lasted for seconds. We who follow Jesus know of a fire that lasts for eternity. And its effects are being felt, felt even now. 
Do you, not, do you not with the knowledge of what the fire can do? Do you not have compassion on the lost? If you had stood there that day with Machiko, if you'd been able somehow to speak into her, you would have said, despite all the hurt, despite all of the evil, despite all that her people had done, you would have screamed, run, the fire is coming. And our God, through the compassion of his son, speaks no less through you to this world. To see them, to have compassion on them, and to say it doesn't have to be this way. So run, run, beloved of our Father. Run from the fire and run to the cross. Will you pray with me? Our God and Father, Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, would you move our hearts far beyond just this evening? Apply your word in a way that lasts. That we cannot be the same, that we can't look at people the same. And that we would know and see and have the compassion of Jesus that we would go to them with the message of Jesus and in the manner of Jesus, representing his love to the lost around us. Lord, would you use us, use us to save them for eternity. It's in the name of your son that we pray. Amen.